The first edition of the Salt River Herald hit the streets on Saturday, January 26, 1878. Like for most papers of the era, the first edition was the time for the editor to wax optimistically bombastic. On the front page, it declared that Phoenix was, quote, the shire town of the Garden of Arizona, and it extolled the climate, the prosperous soil, and mineral wealth of the territory and urged more settlement. The paper declared that Phoenix would become the business center of this territory, and the newspaper was there, quote, because of the great faith we have in the general outcome of this section of the country, end quote. When it came to give more reasons for why the paper had been created in the first place, the editor, in this case Charles E. McClintock, gave two very simple reasons. The very self-evident public good of having a paper of record, and to make money. Like all other men, we are selfish and have a great love for money, McClintock would write. Those words, while typical for the time, were highly ironic. While the Herald was part of the blossoming of newspapers happening at the time, it's hard to fathom why someone who loved money would go into a business that made so very little. In coming years, Arizona would be scattered with the remnants of papers that had believed in their community as much as the Herald, but had failed nonetheless. It turns out that no matter how bullish or aspirational you were, the reality was that newspapers were as risky an investment as prospecting. Some were lucky and made it, but many, many others would simply fail. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 151, A Perilous, Precarious, and Thankless Task. Welcome back, everyone. I hope I didn't put you all to sleep with last week's more dry recitation of all the newspapers vying for attention across the territory in the last half of the 19th century. This week, I still want to continue talking about newspapers, but hopefully get to some of the more fun bits about journalism of the time. I will warn you that the real fun, when newspapers started attacking each other, is going to have to wait until next week. I apologize that there was going to be a whole other week of this, but it turns out that I just really, really like talking about newspapers. Okay, to start with, I think we should define a little bit what we are talking about when we say newspapers. Because many of the newspapers during the territorial period were a simple four-page spread, so really just one giant sheet of paper folded in half. But even then, they would look a lot different than what we expect from our papers today. Despite the fact that they were ostensibly there to share, you know, the news, most were nearly filled with advertisements, reprints from other papers, topical essays, poems, and other notices. It wasn't uncommon for advertisements to appear prominently on the cover of a paper. In fact, often it would be hard to find actual news on A1. Sometimes these ads would even be organized by column. For example, you would have all the lawyers and doctors in one column, then nationwide advertisers, followed by territorial advertisers, and finally local advertisers. 
Author William H. Lyons said that a lot of the printing innovations during this time were in service of ads. Papers would experiment with type and white space to be more eye-catching, and some advertisers actually asked that their submission be run sideways or even upside down just to get a reader's attention. My favorite example of this ad-first style of thinking is that a story about President Rutherford B. Hayes' 1880 trip to visit Tucson, which I think we can all agree is big news, was relegated to page 3 of the Tucson Star. Some of the most popular advertisers of the time were medicines and advice for the lovesick. You'll find all sorts of snake oil being hawked across frontier papers, including, according to Lyon, Tut's pills for tired livers, pink pills for pale people, and Dr. Acker's English elixir. And there were the innumerable self-help books to help young men know how to act in mixed company while also reining in their, um, passions. Finally, the military was also a fertile ground for filling column inches, as any town located near a post was interested in the latest bid notices for military contracts. And before we even actually get to reporting the news, the paper's focus was highly editorial and economic. That is, Frontier editors filled a lot of column inches advocating for this or that candidate, this or that policy, and for this or that economic incentive. Editors across the territory were quick to sing the prices of mining, and equally as quick to advocate for the establishment of railroads, which among other things would help to bolster mining. And boy, oh boy, did they hate the Amerindians. And I mean hate. We've talked in past episodes how newspapers uniformly called for both putting Amerindians on reservations and removing the most troublesome, cough cough Apaches, cough cough, from the territory entirely. John Marion at the Prescott Minor, and did I mention before that he was a crazy racist? Once said, quote, had we a few hundred word I'm not going to say, but it's an expletive meaning black people and a Ku Klux Klan in Arizona, the government would send lots of troops here and lo, the poor Indian would get warmed up, end quote. Meanwhile, John Wasson at the Tucson Citizen wrote that he feared that President Grant's peace policy would switch out, quote, piety for bullets, end quote. And even the usually more moderate Lewis Hughes was a strong advocate for catching, trying, and ultimately executing Geronimo. After the renegade was caught, he was one of those calling for Geronimo to be hung for his crimes. So after all of that, you might actually get a little news sprinkled into your paper. This was especially true in the very early years of territorial journalism, where editors had to wait for news to trickle to them, so they couldn't be relied on to report national or international news. For example, the first issue of the Prescott Minor ran a recounting of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, but sandwiched it between a eulogy for the late John Gurley, the first man picked to be Arizona's governor, and an op-ed piece from another paper about American growth. Now, this would start to change as the 1800s came to a close, and the arrival of railroads, telegraphs, and the Associated Press Service brought more and more news of the outside world to Arizona. Okay, at this point, you might be asking, what about 
actual news. You know, the whole reason they call it a newspaper. Well, the good news is that as the decades wore on, news columns would start to compete with advertisements for precious space. But from the start, the focus was always decidedly local. Often the editor would pen a local news column that would have a glib header such as local brevities, chips from our territorial exchanges, local laconics, my personal favorite, or the more general local happenings. This would usually be a collection of short, pithy stories of a sentence or two that were basically fluff, things that would amuse and entertain the reader. The best equivalent I can think of today is the way that we all smile, shake our heads, but devour every story that starts with Florida Man. And Lyon makes an interesting point that contrasts frontier journalism with the modern variety. Basically, while news organizations, some admittedly more than others, embrace the motto of sex sells, a lot of the times the frontier newspapers would refuse to print scandalous stories involving things like adultery or anything that unwholesome. At one point, the St. John's Herald even wagged a finger at a paper in Prescott for reporting on alleged misuse of funds by the territorial treasurer, something that modern editors wouldn't think twice about printing. Also, at least in the early days of Arizona newspapers, they would not print court proceedings because editors could often get themselves into trouble for writing about legal matters. As someone who once spent a year covering a murder trial, that fact kind of bowled me over. But the biggest kicker is since papers positioned themselves as boosters for their communities, they were known to suppress everything and anything that made their communities look bad. The Tombstone Epitaph, for instance, ignored a story about both a cyclone and a man who threatened to shoot a cook over a disagreement involving scrambled eggs. The Tucson Arizonian decided to stay silent on an outbreak of smallpox in Tucson, and years later the Star and Citizen would both ignore an epidemic of yellow fever. But let's get back to where they got the information that they did wind up actually printing. The answer, funny enough, is that a lot of time... It just came through the door. Either the editor himself had some particular axe he wanted to grind through his paper, or citizens would come into the office to have something printed. As someone who has also talked with a lot of people who either wandered into or called a newspaper, I can tell you that it's a very mixed bag. For example, I once had a guy talk my ear off for an hour about how John Wayne had killed a man in Mexico, and another who swore that the Lost Dutchman mine was actually in the Bradshaw Mountains, but there was a conspiracy to keep that quiet that somehow involved the owner of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Still, an editor couldn't sit around and wait for the news to come to him. In the earliest days, the main source of news came from other newspapers. The Tubac Arizonian relied on papers that the Sonora Exploring and Mining Company passed along to it, seeing as it was essentially a company newspaper. However, we know from Poston's accounts that most of these papers were months out of date. The Prescott Miner was in a similar boat, relying on the military and private individuals to pass along news of the outside world. Lyon says that the Miner remained only a bi-weekly newspaper until 1867, probably because the lack of news that it received. The main problem was that newspapers mainly arrived in the mail. However, mail service was virtually non-existent in Arizona. 
Since no mail essentially meant no news, the editors of the day were always quick to champion any efforts to change that situation. However, though a lot of resolutions were passed, postmasters appointed, and money spread around, there would be no regular mail service to the territory until the 1870s, and no service that people were happy about until the 1880s. By the by, the situation also infuriated editors because no regular mail meant that they couldn't send out copies of their paper either, and there was apparently the regular borrowing of papers from the mail sacks. Another reason to despair at the mail situation is that newspapers often did exchanges, sending out copies to the more civilized parts of the world, and in return, those more civilized places would send copies of their papers back. Really, it was a mutually beneficial arrangement, as Arizona editors received news from the rest of the country, while places in California and New York learned all about the situation in that exotic place called Arizona. Though, as Line points out, it wasn't exactly a fair exchange. The two-back Arizonians sent out 30 copies to various papers on both coasts, but only received copies of three newspapers in return. And even when these papers did arrive, they were still months out of date. As a funny aside to this, as demonstrated by the Arizonian in last week's episode, the territorial papers also wanted copies of out-of-state periodicals so they could jump to the defense of Arizona if and when it was maligned. For example, when the San Francisco Alta Californian wrote, Poor Arizona, Land of the Prickly Pear and Scorpion, John Marion at the Prescott Minor replied in only a way that John Marion could. He wrote, quote, Ancient, stupid, and malignant hog, how much better off is your own state? End quote. The arrival of reliable telegraph service in 1873 shook things up a bit. Though papers had been running news from the telegraph service in other papers, thanks to those exchanges. However, due to the no-nonsense nature of the military telegraph, and the high rates charged by Western Union on the private lines, a lot of papers simply couldn't afford to rely on news that could be purchased through telegraph service. As late as 1889, only three papers in the state, the Tucson Star, the Tucson Citizen, and the Phoenix Herald, received regular telegraphic reports from the Associated Press. Even then, the rivals Star and Citizen actually had to cooperate with each other to afford to bring the AP dispatches to their readers. When the Arizona Republican came on the scene in 1890, it promised its readers the full 6,000-word AP report, but this was a promise it repeatedly broke when it couldn't afford it. Another source of news was the idea of a correspondent, someone in another part of the territory who would literally write letters about what they saw and observed in their neck of the woods. Here, the editor had to be cautious, however, because people writing letters to have published sometimes have axes to grind, and it didn't matter if what they wrote was true or not. One editor told a woman who signed her letter simply as a lady that he wasn't going to print her submission, because she claimed that Arizona's gold and silver mines were a myth. And a few times, they even had to apologize when some of their correspondents' letters got a little too punchy. The one thing you might have noticed by now is missing is what we today would call the primary source of news gathering, the reporter. 
Believe it or not, the idea of a reporter didn't really come into play until the end of the 1800s. Professional reporters would arrive to report on the war against Geronimo for papers in and outside the territory, and various papers started hiring people to cover such things as trials, railroad construction, executions, farming, and mining. It was a pretty big deal when the Arizona Republicans started publishing in 1890 with its own stable of dedicated reporters. Before that became the norm, editors sometimes would rely on amateur reporters to cover things such as births, deaths, marriages, public meetings, or Indian attacks. However, more often than not, they would do it themselves. Again, from personal experience, I can tell you that in many newsrooms, editors slash reporters feel like they're the one man doing everything, but in this case, it was actually true. We'll get into this in a second, but newspapers were not good business ventures, so oftentimes the only staffing the paper had were the often drunk guys printing it and the editor. So the editor would go off to find news and, more importantly, news subscribers. If they were close enough, they would attend things like the legislative session to have news to write about. Often, they even suspended publication so they could go and do something and write about it. Our favorite example, John Marion from the Prescott Miner, took a trip up the Verde River and then to Tucson with General George Stoneman, and then recounted it for the next six editions of his paper. Sometimes, though, and it was more the exception rather than the rule, all these sources of news ran dry, or even worse, there was nothing to actually print on. This actually happened several times in the early 1860s, when the miner was forced to print on manila stock paper because the latest shipment of newsprint had not made it to Prescott yet. At another time, Marion had to suspend publication because the newsprint again failed to arrive, and he couldn't find any more manila stock in town. Then there was a time he had to print on colored paper rather than traditional news stock, something that wasn't unheard of as the Yuma Sentinel derided the Tucson Star as being the, quote, brown paper star. After hearing that last part, you might be thinking that printing a newspaper was a pretty fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants thing. And you would be right, but even more so than you know. Edward Cross, the editor of the territory's first newspaper, the Tubac Arizonian, once remarked that, quote, Conducting a newspaper in a frontier country is always a perilous, precarious, and thankless task. End quote. I'll again editorialize by dipping back into the well of personal experience to say that I don't think much has changed today. As Lyne puts it, frontier newspapers defied the laws of economics. First off, there were the relatively high startup costs. Examining what records we do have, we find that furnishing a print operation or buying up one of the many, many, many newspapers that went belly up could cost you a few thousand dollars. That was in the more populated areas. As you went into the more far-flung places in the world, the cost would merely be several hundreds of dollars. That's why many of the early frontier papers were closely tied to businesses, or, more importantly, politics. In those cases, the paper wasn't so much a business as a fully funded expenditure to help get the proper version of the truth out to as many people as possible. 
We've already discussed how this was especially true of Governor Wolfley and the Arizona Republican. Even then, however, papers were a very risky gamble. In 1882, Lewis Hughes of the Star noted that not a single paper across the entire territory could pay more than 2 or 3% on the investment to start it up, and that editors made dismal salaries. There were a lot of factors that made journalism a shaky proposition from the start. Frontier economic conditions, with their lack of money and capital, poor transportation networks, and low level of consumption, all contributed. But the biggest problem of all, ironically enough, is that there were just too many darn newspapers out there. It's almost crazy to think about, given everything I just said, but the newspaper market was intensely competitive. Hughes said in 1882 that he calculated that a community of 5,000 people could sustain one daily paper, and a community of 12,000 people could maybe support up to two. Even as he wrote that, however, Prescott and Phoenix, both with populations of less than 2,000 people, each boasted two daily papers, with a third planned for Prescott. Tucson, which had around 6,700 residents, also was barely supporting two dailies along with a weekly paper in Spanish. Hughes would also write that in 1882, the Territory of Arizona published more newspapers per capita than any other territory in the western United States. And of the 18 papers then being printed, only five would be operating on a legitimate paying basis. And three years later, the situation was even worse, with Tucson boasting six papers, Prescott five, and Tombstone, Phoenix, Yuma, and St. John's, each having two. Lyon lays out some more figures, saying that newspaper directories from 1880 list 15 papers in Arizona, a number that ballooned to 69 by 1908, and that doesn't include the mountain of papers that failed in the meantime. So why did people keep trying to cram newspapers into what was clearly an oversaturated market? James H. McClintock, who was a newspaper man himself, believed it to be a form of vanity that men simply wanted to see their names and ideas immortalized in print. Another reason was politics and the chance to grab some patronage, something that we'll talk about before too long. It certainly couldn't have been for the money that came in through ordinary business channels. We don't have really good notions for how many subscribers Frontier Papers had, because their editors were constantly inflating the numbers to make themselves seem more important. For example, in 1900, the three major Phoenix papers, the Herald, Gazette, and Republican, all claimed a circulation that was greater than the actual population of the city. Up in Prescott, John Marion said that the miner only had 75 subscribers, but less than a year later, he claimed a readership of between 400 and 500 people. Lyon estimates that most papers probably had a circulation of between 500 and 600 paid subscribers, so orders of magnitude smaller than, say, the New York world. Here's the problem, though. Even though I just used the term paid subscribers, most of them did not, in fact, pay. Editors were always waging a constant battle to get people to pony up money, whether they be subscribers or advertisers. Insisting that people pay up front for services was implausible, 
as a paucity of hard capital was common on the frontier. This left those running the newspapers to resort to chiding, cajoling, and begging people to actually pay for the newspaper. The editor of the Tucson Arizonian would complain loudly that though the city residents claimed they wanted a paper, quote, of one thing I am convinced, that they will not support one, end quote. In Yuma, the Sentinel's editor had a frank conversation with his readers, telling them that the newspaper had only 43 paying subscribers, but even some of those were three months in arrears. In typical fashion, Marion and Prescott approached the issue with barely contained sarcasm, writing an appeal to readers that, quote, Our foreman says he must have a cradle for his baby, a new set of teeth for his old cow, a few broomsticks for his better half, and a glass eye for himself, end quote. Just a year later, he again tried to drum up support, claiming that if anyone would pay the $7 subscription rate, that Marion would vote for them to be delegate to Congress, or that he would get them homesteads in the Tonto Basin or White Mountains, or that he would provide free claims to miners. Lewis Hughes at the Tucson Star went so far as to publish correspondence between himself and the men at Fort Lowell, showing that they had not paid their subscriptions. Finally, though, he had to admit defeat and simply cut off circulation to the fort. At various times, the Tucson Star, Prescott Minor, and St. John's Herald also published the so-called Law of Newspapers, which, among other things, threatens to arrest anyone who takes a newspaper but does not pay for it. These rules were not at all legally binding, and Lyon suspects they were more to strike fear into readers than anything else. One particularly morbid example of a fear tactic, mixed with healthy amounts of sarcasm, was a piece that ran in the Tombstone Epitaph, which said that the editor knew of an infernal machine that could be slipped into an envelope and mailed to delinquent subscribers. When the said subscriber opened the envelope, it would explode, killing everyone in the house, and then parts would fall into the yard and kill the family dog as well. What makes things even more fun for our Frontier editors, however, is that subscribers were not the only ones not putting up money. During this era, advertisers, which would eventually become the lifeblood of a newspaper, were slow to print ads and even slower to pay for them. The editor was constantly reminding various local businesses that their product brought in more outside capital for money invested than any other, and that all the money was spent locally in the community. However, a lot of businesses still didn't see the need to advertise and almost saw running ads in the paper as a type of charity. And just like with subscribers, the papers would often result to persuading, begging, and ultimately publicly shaming those who did not pay their bills. In 1879, the Prescott Miner chastised Yuma attorney H.N. Alexander for not paying to have his card run in the paper. This apparently became a black mark on Alexander, because three years later, the Prescott Courier would say that he, quote, who swindles printers, has been appointed deputy collector of internal revenue, end quote. The Tempe News would actually pull an ad from a delinquent advertiser, choosing to run instead a notice saying, quote, this space was taken up by, the name of the advertiser, he owes X amount of dollars for it and won't pay. Look out for him, end quote. The advertiser in question tried to take the editor of the paper to court over this public shaming, but the case was dismissed. A potential lifeline was extended through the territorial legislature, 
which would subscribe to many of the papers located throughout Arizona. The reasoning was that individual legislators couldn't do their jobs without the vital information contained in newspapers. Now, the amount spent and the number of subscriptions would fluctuate wildly through the years, with the Territorial House of Representatives alternatively spending hundreds to thousands of dollars on just a handful of papers to up to 25 of them. The other piece of revenue was printing jobs, both for the government and for individual businesses. Now, the government printing jobs was the bone that all the journalistic dogs were fighting over, and that is something I plan to cover a bit more in the next episode. Suffice it to say here that the revenue that came in from printing laws and other acts of the legislature could keep an otherwise floundering newspaper in business. Then there were the odd printing jobs, special publishing projects. The two-back Arizonian from the get-go announced that it had brought a whole job office from San Francisco, capable of tackling any job, just in case the need should arise. And Lewis Hughes in 1878 spent what must have been a truly painful $2,500 for presses, material, and type in order to take on such work. It's hard for us now to tell exactly how much money they made off of odd jobs, but as you can imagine, it couldn't have been much. The final source of revenue I want to talk about came around every couple of years. As we'll see in next week's episode, Frontier newspapers were highly political, and a reason for that was that politics was good money. One editor observed that election times were harvest time for newspapers. Not only did the campaigning, politicking, and editorializing attract readers, but it had a very real financial upside. At the time, candidates for various offices would pay to have their candidacy announced in the newspaper. The rates for these varied from a mere $10 for an aspiring coroner to $250 for a candidate running for sheriff. And then there was the extra printing of posters, election tickets, county poll lists, precinct tally sheets, and whatever else the election required. Even with this biennial bump, printing papers in a sparsely settled, though somehow oversaturated market, was never a winning strategy. It wouldn't be until the turn of the 20th century that newspapers finally landed on the ad-supported business model that sustained them up until recent times. So, who were the lunatics who went into this trade? There, I have good news and bad news. The good news is, we will dive deeply into that question. The bad news is that it will have to wait until next time. So, join me next week as we finally get to tackle what I've been really wanting to talk about this entire time politics, money, and the battles newspapers fought over it all. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye. Goodbye.